Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our Metro editor, Eilina Peng, who's here to talk about students advocating for a university pass. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This week, we worked on an article about students advocating for University Pass, which is a WMATA program that gives students discounted metro rides. James Harnett, who is an advisory neighborhood commissioner, has been researching University Pass for several months now and recently went to WMATA's budget hearing to ask them about University Pass and about potentially expanding the program so that students can have more affordable metro passes without the entire university buying in. So currently the University Pass program, which schools like American University have, gives students unlimited metro rides if every student at the school pays for the metro metro pass as part of their tuition each year. And who else is leading this effort besides James Harnett? So Sarah Crawley is leading a working group at GW's Roosevelt Institute regarding UPASS. They're putting a referendum on the student association elections ballot. Unlike James, the Roosevelt Institute isn't trying to change WMATA's university pass program to allow individual students to participate in the university pass program. Rather, they're hoping that the entire university will choose to buy in so that all students at GW will be part of the University Pass program. The Roosevelt Institute is also working on a letter to send to university administrators in the coming weeks, asking them to open conversations with WMATA about potentially being a part of the University Pass program. What are the benefits of having a University Pass and what are students hoping that this pass will allow them to participate in and do around the city? Students are really hoping that this will allow them to go to their internships or jobs with more ease, um, especially since GW is located in such a prime location for all of those things. It makes students' lives a lot easier if they're able to commute to their internships or jobs or even just to go on a social outing. Um, with just without having to worry about the additional fees of paying for transportation. One thing that University President Thomas LeBlanc has noted in the past is that he wants this university to be focused on service, specifically looking at community service. And students have also said that having a university pass would benefit students who conduct community service projects outside of the Foggy Bottom area. I was talking to Sarah Crowley from the Roosevelt Institute about this, and she was saying that one of President LeBlanc's goals for GW is to be a service-oriented university. It's hard for students to be a service-oriented community when they can't leave the Foggy Bottom area or when leaving the Foggy Bottom area itself can be a financial burden. Well, thanks for coming on, Eilina, and be sure to keep us updated in April when we find out the results of the referendum. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I'm here with staff writer Shannon Millard, who's here to talk about students gaining access to Python programs. Thanks for coming on, Shannon. Oh, thank you for having me. For those who don't know, what are Python courses? Basically, it's a programming language that can be used to perform data analysis and also to develop web um, web applications that can be used for myriad functions. So ideally, the program is going to be split into a two-semester curriculum. So the first semester would focus on the fundamentals of programming in Python and just learning how to input simple commands and learn the syntax of the language. 
and the second semester would be focused on more complex functions like regression analysis and introductions to what machine learning is and what that entails. And these programs will be open to everyone at GW? Yes, they will be open to all GW students, but specifically for those who are studying political science and majors within the Elliott School of International Affairs, uh, mostly because um, jobs in those fields increasingly require computational skills and knowledge of data analysis. What did faculty say about these programs being accessible to all students, and why do they think that's important? The prevailing consensus among faculty members that I spoke with for the story was that um, in the modern economy, it's increasingly required and expected for students to and potential employees to have a pretty comprehensive background in computational skills, whether that be um, in programming, in Python or Java or any other language like that, just to perform basic data analysis, um, develop tools that can be used to develop applications that might be needed by whatever business or industry they're working for. And this is something that University President Thomas LeBlanc had discussed at the last faculty senate meeting. Yeah, he said he's particularly um, enthused to that this program is being open to all students, especially those who are in the Elliott School or political science majors, because he also recognizes the need and concurs with the computer science department on this that is just ultimately expected and necessary to have computational skills to be more marketable for potential employers and to be more valuable to whichever company or industry you're working for. Python is a free program online, but what is the benefit to having the university promote this program and offer it to its students? Uh, Mostly because students would receive a guided instruction in how to use the program because then um, again, each programming language has its own syntax and Um, different ways of inputting commands to get the results that you want out of it. Receiving that direct instruction from professors can be really helpful in making your first forays into using the program, especially if you're not familiar with either Python or computer programming in general. Does the university have any specific goals in terms of enrollment for these programs? Yes, the chair of the computer science department, Robert Pless, said that uh, ideally they want to expand the program to accommodate approximately 200 students. And as of right now, across two sections of the course, they have 72 students taking the class right now. Well, thanks for coming on, Shannon, and telling us more about Python. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me. Meredith, you had a story this week about the Alumni Association. Give us some updates about that. We talked about before how GW got rid of its Alumni Association. Then that group, formerly known as the Alumni Association, they created their own association. But GW just said, like, keep in the back of your mind, uh, we are going to still create our own alumni association. So this is the first time we're kind of hearing an update about that. We actually have a launch date for that new group. The new association is going to be launching this later this spring in April, and the operational guidelines were approved at the last Board of Trustees meeting earlier this month. So that's just one more concrete step that they've kind of taken uh, on this journey. They also announced that they're going to have a third party that is going to be kind of heading the development of this. So the third party uh, is an alumni engagement consultant called eAdvancements. The person who, the consultant who's going to be running the association is going to be Gary Olson. What When I talked to officials about this, they said that the Office for Alumni Relations just didn't have the manpower, just didn't have the resources to go ahead and develop this because before the GWAA, the the former alumni association, was running it with support from the office, but now the office has to 
undertake the whole creation of this and the running of this so that's why they hired an outside consultant to do it because they just didn't have the resources eventually the alumni association will choose some alumni leaders so alumni will still be decision makers in this process and how will this be different from the former alumni group when i talk to officials about this new group officials said that they had goals for engagement with alumni they you know, we've talked about before how alumni giving is really low at GW compared to its peers. The number of volunteers that the university engages with every year that are alumni is also very low, so they, they wanted to change this. And then when the merger with the GWAA and the Office for Alumni Relations didn't work out, officials said it became clear that they couldn't move forward with that association and the, the goals that they wanted to accomplish just couldn't be achieved in improving those numbers and improving statistics for alumni in general. But something that trustee Rosalind Brock, who is heading the development of the Alumni Association, and she's been working on this since October, but some, something that she noted was that she wants this alumni association to be more flexible for alumni, she said she really wants to make it clear that this is for all alumni. Uh, there will continue to be no dues for participating in the association. There will be more flexibility in terms of how alumni can volunteer with the university to, to make it possible for alumni to engage with GW. But there's still another alumni association. How will the two groups now work together? The Independent Alumni Association of George Washington, which is the, the leaders of the former GWAA, they do not have any kind of relationship with the university right now, so it's unlikely that they'll be working directly with the university in any kind of capacity. When I spoke with leaders of that group, they said that they saw the two groups working kind of in parallel because they noted that their group doesn't have the resources that GW does, so they want the things that they do to be very specific, and they've discussed that before. They want to have grants for alumni groups and student groups who want to have events about GW and events um, involving alumni, and they want to also be able to do professional development events for alumni and kind of networking things like that. And so they kind of see that as their wheelhouse while the university should be able to do more like broad things and will be able to do a lot more. One thing that Marty Baum, the president of the Independent Alumni Association of George Washington said was that he didn't want to see it as like a two competing organizations, but he said he saw it more as alumni are could participate in both and both groups care about the university and want its alumni to succeed. Well, thanks for coming on, Meredith, and giving us an update about GW's alumni. Keep you updated as more information comes out. I'm here with our contributing culture editor, Catherine Abugazala, and we're going to talk about something that is all over campus, AirPods. Yes, AirPods. So how did you kind of go about talking to people for this story? What, what did you uncover about people's opinions on AirPods? Well, we had two really awesome reporters on this story, Lauren Offman and Zelana Lee, and they interviewed over 20 students about AirPods, just saying, you know, if you own them, what are your thoughts on them? Talk to students about why they use them and why they're so prevalent on campus. And what did you find out? I mean, they really are all over campus. There were two major takeaways from the article. First, that people see them as a status symbol. They're almost $160, so it's kind of like wearing a Canada Goose coat or having a designer bag. 
they're just a status symbol. Second, over half the students that we interviewed said that AirPods contribute to them being antisocial now and that it impacts their social lives. In what way? Like, do they get more specific than that? Yes, a lot of students said that they put them in so they don't have to talk to people. And then professors even said that they noticed that kids listen to them in class or when they're coming in, they don't greet the professor because they're listening to their AirPods. So it's like a block to any other interaction. But we've had other, like, ear devices before. Like, how are these different? Well, AirPods, they're so small and they're so comfortable to wear that you don't really notice that they're there and that it's easy to just keep them in and keep listening to your music or anything else. So you also talked to professors for this story. What was their take on the social impacts of this? One of the professors that we interviewed, he's a marketing professor and said he understands the high demand for AirPods, first off because of the social pressure to get that trendy look. Uh, but second, because people do want hands-free technology. They want everything to be as efficient as possible. But he does say that people need to approach it with moderation and be able to see when it's impacting their lives in a negative way. The second professor we interviewed was a sociology professor, and she also mentioned that she sees students wearing AirPods a lot and it can kind of create a barrier between that professor's student interaction. But she also sees that it can give students enjoyment and allow them to listen to music more often, but can pose a social hindrance. Thanks for coming on to talk about this trend on campus. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editors Catherine Abogazala and Lindsay Pollan. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Shannon Millard and Eileen Pang for joining us. See you next week.